Hello and welcome to the Sex Within Marriage Podcast. My name is JD and I blog over at UncoveringIntimacy.com and today we're going to be answering some questions about nudism, exhibitionism, male lingerie, pet play, Romans 13, 14, adult nursing relationships, and a few other things from our anonymous Have a Question page. Uh, special thanks to all of our supporters who share their thoughts, opinions, and experiences in our forum. I absolutely love all the discussion that we have about these kinds of topics. So, without further ado, here are the questions from last month. Question one is, is nudism a sin? If you're a Christian, is it inappropriate to be naked outside of one's intimacy? Are naked hiking and or swimming okay? So, I've been struggling with the idea of Christian nudists for a while, and to be honest, I don't have a hard stance on it. But here's where I am right now. First, I don't believe nudism is a sin. Adam and Eve were created naked before sin entered the world, so being naked clearly isn't sinful. However, I believe there is a time and a place for everything, and the problem is that not everyone agrees on what those times and places are. And if everyone agreed that nudity wasn't inappropriate at any time and everyone want, went naked any time that the weather or their activities permitted, then we wouldn't likely have an issue. Um, likewise, if everyone agreed that nudity was inappropriate except for in the privacy of your own bedroom and bathroom, then we'd not have any issues either. However, the problem is that you have some people who have no issues with nudity and others who have serious issues with them and a whole bunch of people in the middle. And that causes a conflict. So some will argue that it's immoral to offend someone else. Uh, so even if nudity isn't immoral itself, offending someone else with your nudity is. Um, I don't particularly like that answer because that's kind of the direction our entire society is going to outlaw being offensive. And I think it's making us stupid in the process. You know, intelligent debate requires being willing to both offend and be offended because you can't even discuss critical issues without potentially offending someone. Um, for example, I'm fairly certain that just about every post and podcast that I ever released or will ever release will offend somebody. It's nearly guaranteed. Um, but I'm not about to stop because I think it's important that we discuss these issues. And uh, frankly, I take my example from Jesus, who clearly wasn't worried about offending people either. Uh, he was much more interested in the truth than whether or not he was offending someone. At least that's how I see it. And then there's the argument about whether it will incite lust in others or not. And however, this is a bit cyclical of an argument because the reason it incites lust is because it's taboo and uncommon to see naked people walking around. If it was commonplace, then we likely wouldn't have the same impact. So that's not a great argument e either. Um, however, here in Canada, and I believe most other countries, there are laws prohibiting nudity when out in public. And what we see in the Bible is Jesus telling us to respect our authorities. So hiking and swimming naked then become problematic because unless you can be assured of your privacy due to the legality and because it's a legal issue, then it becomes a moral issue since it's moral to follow the laws. And don't get me wrong, I think there's a time for your rights and freedoms uh, when governmental law goes contrary. To but personally, the right to be naked is not a hill I'm willing to die on or even get a ticket for, especially since nowhere does the Bible seemed to even suggest that nudity in public spaces is something that we should be striving for. So I'm going to say that it's probably not above the submit to authorities direct commandment that we do have in the Bible. So, uh, yeah, if it's legal where you live, then I don't see an inherent problem with it. So for example, I don't see an issue that I can find with being naked in the privacy of your own home. 
uh, having people over who would also be of the same mind about nudity and being naked together by that same logic, I think would also be okay. Um, I would say be careful about open windows because in some jurisdictions, if the windows are open, then that could also be considered public and thus fall under public indecency laws. Um, so then things like hiking in your own backyard, if you have acreage, for example, likely not a problem. Hiking naked on public trails, however, check your laws. Uh, likewise with swimming, if it's in your own pool, maybe not an issue so long as you have fences and your neighbors don't have a second floor on their house. Um, skinny dipping in the quarry, again, check your own laws. All right, and question two kind of builds on this. Uh, this person writes, Hey, Jay, my wife and I are followers of Jesus and pretty conservative. We were virgins when we married, and I never saw our wedding night when we had glorious and awkward sex for the first time. On our honeymoon, my wife went topless on a public beach. She was inspired by other topless women around, and no one seemed to care about it and took the plunge. Her topless beach experience led to our hottest round of sex afterwards. Thirteen years later, my wife discreetly goes topless on beaches when others are doing the same. She has probably been topless on the beach for 15 to 20 times now, and because of my job, we travel a lot and end up on beaches all around the world. In the bedroom, topless fantasies are one of our favorite role plays. When I come to the bedroom, she's often in a little thong bikini getting warmed up with, for me with her vibrator. She says the vibrator feels great over her bikini bottoms, and yes, she has worn thongs on public beaches, although less often than being topless. Like with being topless, she will not wear a thong on a busy beach and does her best to remain discreet. Clearly, my wife and I enjoy some exhibition together. So here's my question. Is it okay for a Christian couple to engage in mild exhibition like I described? All right. So like I said, this question kind of builds on the previous one. But in this case, we still have nudity, which I still stand by isn't a problem if it's legal, such as when you describe when topless beaches are legal. Uh, for example, here in Ontario, Canada, it's perfectly legal for women to walk around topless in public. That law came into effect when I was a teenager, so it hasn't quite become the norm in our culture by any means yet. Uh, I believe I've only ever seen one woman exercise that right, and it was at an outdoor, outdoor concert, and I have a feeling she would have um, done it regardless of whether or not it was legal. However, with this question, now it's not just nudity, but the requirement for other people to see you naked. And here's where I think you start to enter uh, a more dangerous gray area, because for some, it might be the fact that they're finally free to be nude. That's exhilarating uh, the focus on being free and the nudity itself. And that I don't think is a problem. But for this couple, it seems to be specifically about other people being witness to that nudity. So now you're using other people's foreplay and that trips across the line for me because now you're using someone else in your sex life, basically using them as a sex toy. And for me, that's problematic. That's how I see it anyways. But I'd love to know what other people's opinions are. So if you've got a thought, head over to the blog and put it in the comment section. You can find the link to the show notes in the podcast episode description. Question three states, with reference to Romans 13, verse 14, how much thinking or planning about sex with my wife is too much thinking? So Romans 13, verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. All right, so here's the problem when you take a verse out of context. Reading this as a standalone verse, you may conclude that planning for sex is sinful because it's a provision for the flesh. However, 
In the verses immediately surrounding this verse, Paul makes it clear that he's talking about works of darkness, that is sin. Um, Sex with your wife is not sin, so you can't apply this verse to sex within marriage in general. As well, if you read more of Paul's writings, uh, he often talks about the dichotomy between you know the flesh and the spirit, and he uses these as metaphors not to talk about physical things and spiritual things, but rather the life you live apart from Christ and the life that you live as part of Christ. That is, the unbeliever's life versus the believer's life, the unsaved versus the saved. And this is important because people... Many people mistakenly believe that Paul is talking about flesh versus soul literally and make up a lot of contradictory doctrine because of it. But he's not. He's talking about your life acknowledging Christ as Lord versus your life believing yourself to be Lord. And given that larger context, this verse isn't about sex at all, but rather about all those sinful temptations that come up. Paul is saying not to give them any thought. Don't entertain them. Don't try to make plans for how you're going to fulfill them, and don't work towards satisfying them. Because otherwise, if this text is actually about physical desires, well, then you shouldn't plan for meals or sleep or anything else that we need to survive as physical beings. And that doesn't really make much sense. So, with reference to Romans 13 verse 14, how much thinking or planning about sex with my wife is too much thinking? Unless you're planning to do something immoral with your wife, I don't think this comes into context. Rather, I'd go check out uh, Song of Solomon and read that whole thing and see how much planning and uh, thinking about sex that Solomon does. It doesn't seem to be an issue there. All right, question four writes, Hello, Jay. I'm a 48-year-old male and married to a 50-year-old. We lost our first child, stillborn, back in 2005, and my wife hemorrhaged and lost a lot of blood. She was... received a blood transfusion and doctor said no long-term damage but because of the amount of blood lost we had a daughter in 2007 and a miscarriage a year later my wife has never been the same since the day we lost our first baby she has gotten worse over the years always irritable and most of the time angry upset at the kids for the smallest things and yelling at them she's not dealt with the losses and tries to fill the void with stuff always buying things I've tried to get her to go to counseling, which she refuses, and she won't open up and talk about it. I'm at my wit's end, and the kids are always walking on eggshells around her. She also had a rough upbringing in her childhood, which has caused issues as well as physical abuse and, I believe, sexual. Divorce is a really tough option as a believer, but I can't keep going on like this. Any suggestions, Rob? Um... For me, I would say don't take no as an option for counseling. You know, there's a time and a place for counseling, and I believe this is one of those times, uh, if it's as you describe it. You know, she's experienced trauma and never dealt with it, and now is passing on that trauma to others. Um, You know, there's an old uh, saying, you know, hurt people hurt people. And that's not okay. It's not okay for her or for you, nor for your kids. You know, they shouldn't have to grow up in a home where they have to walk on eggshells. That's going to negatively affect their future relationships as well. So if it was me, I would tell my wife all of that. Uh, maybe some thing like, um, dear, I believe you're hurting and you need someone to help you. What's going on right now isn't okay for me or for you or our children. You know, they need stable parents and I need a stable wife. Are you willing to come with me to counseling so that we can get help? And if she won't go, then I'd probably say something like, all right, well, 
I'm going to be going to counseling then, and I'm going to be taking the kids so that we can learn how to not have our lives damaged by your pain. Uh, I'd much rather you be part of that discussion so we can plan our futures together, but if you're unwilling, then I understand. And this is a bit of a warning shot, and some might call it manipulative or an ultimatum, but the fact is that you're already thinking about leaving. If you didn't do this, then she'd be blindsided by it. So this is telling her clearly uh, out in the open that this is intolerable. not in a mean way, but literally we cannot tolerate it. And we're not willing to live like this anymore. So I would consider this extending an opportunity to fix things. To me, that's setting a healthy boundary and then standing by it for the sake of your health, that of your children, and for your wife as well. Because ultimately, you have promised to love her and leaving her like this is not loving. Um, so that's what I do in my marriage with my wife. Um, I don't know enough about your marriage to tell you what you should do. Um, You'll have to make that decision for yourself, but maybe that gives you something to work with as an idea. And what you could always do is reach out to a therapist and go yourself and say, hey, this is my situation. You know, what can I do? And then the therapist can spend time asking you questions and build a plan with you that fits your situation better. All right. Question number five is my husband wants to start an ANR, which I'm excited about. I did not breastfeed my children and have gone through menopause. What steps do I need to start lactating again? I hope you can help me. So for those who don't know, an ANR is an adult nursing relationship. I've written about them before. I'll link to the post in the show notes. Um, it also has some information that this person is looking for, I believe. Um, you can also check out the comments on that post too, because some Christian pro ANR websites left some comments that might be helpful as well. And that's about all I'm going to say about it, because I am not an expert on this but hopefully that'll point you towards some people who are. All right. And question six is quite long. It's multiple paragraphs. So, so if you want to read the whole thing, you can go check it out on the website Uh, links in the show notes as always. Um, But the short version of it is uh, this wife's husband has started masturbating and watching porn. And this is making sex less pleasurable for her because he doesn't last long enough for her to have an orgasm. Plus she's hurt by it because he's cheating on her with porn. So how does she deal with this and still remain biblically respectful as a wife? So in the longer version, uh, you mentioned that you already talked to him and he got angry. And I'm curious exactly what you said, Uh, because often when people say, oh, I talked about it, but they got angry, the conversation starts very combative. So if I had to make a guess, I I I would guess that you were on the attack from the beginning and then he got defensive. Um, I'm not saying that you don't have every right to be angry, but often what we have the right to do isn't what's more effective or the productive thing to do. Um, But that's not a guarantee. Some people just get defensive because it's easier than feeling convicted. So let's say you approached it lovingly and you expressed how it made you feel and made it appeal for him to protect your feelings and gave him hope that devoting his sexual energy to you would yield an even more erotic sex life than what porn could give him. Now what? Well, then I go back to my rule about divorce. Is this something that you can bear? For some, they have the strength to continue like this for the rest of their life. And if you have the strength, there are verses that talk about such things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 13 says, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Uh, In cases like this, I would say your husband is acting like a non-believer, whether he claims to be or not. 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 4 has a similar message about staying in a marriage um, 
even if your husband is not a believer or doesn't obey God, uh, because you might convert them. And if you look at the book of Hosea, you see this huge, shining example of a husband who stayed with his wife despite public adultery and humiliation. And so there is a chance that your message of love might reach him. It's not a guarantee that he'll listen to it, though. For others, this situation is unbearable, in which case I would consider this adultery as you do, uh, which the Bible says is permissible, is a permissible reason for divorce. Um, I should note, it doesn't say divorce is mandatory, merely permissible. So then the question falls to, uh, which is stronger, your love for your spouse or your hate for what he's doing? And I'm not making a judgment here. I think that calculation is different for everyone, and you have to decide for yourself which one wins. All right, question seven. This person asks, is male lingerie okay within the confines of a straight Christian marriage? Some quote-unquote male lingerie ranges from pretty mild to very effeminate, but are clearly made with a male figure in mind. For example, if something is made for the male figure, but it is lace or frill on it, is that considered women's clothing, even though it's labeled as male lingerie? Stuff that I'd strictly want to wear for my wife, confined only to our intimate moments occasionally. Also, is pet play okay? Nothing too extreme, but accessories like cat ears or painted on nose and whiskers, stuff that is cute but distinctly male and human, just made to be a cute and submissive role play while still being distinctly male and masculine. All right, so we have two questions here, really. So we'll tackle them in order. The first is male lingerie okay. So my stance has always been that God made two genders, distinct and separate, and what constitutes male and female clothing changes from culture to culture and from age to age. Uh, so you can't say that X clothing is for women and Y clothing is for men. Um, if you look back in old pictures uh, and paintings, we can see radically how dressing style is different. Uh, even in today's age, styles differ. Um, so I think it comes down to the why. Why is it that you want to wear this? You know, lace and frill used to be commonly included in male clothing, so they're not inherently female. But if your goal is to look or feel more feminine, that's where I think you begin to cross the line. And it's not to say that men can't have interests that some consider feminine. I don't want people to be confused here. If a man wants to take up knitting, go right ahead. Uh, if you like frill on clothes, that's fine. Um, but if you're doing it to feel more feminine, then I think we're drifting again. So that's my thought about the clothing. Now for the pet play thing, here's my issue with pet play. You're basically acting out bestiality, which is abhorrent in the Bible. Uh, Exodus 22 verse 19 says, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Um, I, I believe they actually killed the animal as well. So that's strong language. And I'm not suggesting that having sex with someone who is dressed like a cat is bestiality but it's mimicking bestiality, which I think violates the verse in Philippians 4, verse 8, um, which is the one that says, Finally, brethren, whichever, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if anything is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So in other words, we should focus on the things that are good, not be mimicking things that are evil. And so I have some concerns about it because what again, what is it that makes you want to uh, have sex with an animal or act as an animal when you're having sex? Uh, furthermore, why does it seem acceptable to feed that desire by play acting it? 
you know, if we have a child that seems to be enamored with murder, starts buying knives and play acting, killing their siblings and friends, well, we'd be bringing that child to a therapist. It doesn't matter that they've never killed anyone before. The point is something's not right. And I'm not saying that pet play is akin to being a psychopath. I'm just using an extreme case to try and make a subtle point less subtle. Um, basically, don't feel feed unnatural and unhealthy desires. Question eight is, when I have sex doggy position, my husband is too rough and bottoms out. Any suggestion for this situation? So, having just read that I said this about pet play and this this uh, position is called doggy's position, um, someone's going to make the connection and go, well, they're having sex in doggy's position. That's like pet play. And if I think if you're doing it to act out two dogs having sex, then yes, it is. But if you're not, then they're unrelated. It's just what it's called. Um, anyways, to answer the question, yes, they actually make uh, something for this. There is on Mary Dance uh, a toy or accessory or whatever you want to call it um, called the Bumper Deep Thrust Cushion. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and there's a coupon code to, I think, get 10% off from your first order. So give that a try. If it works, leave a review over on their site. All right, and lastly, question number nine. This person writes, some quick background. I'm a morning person. My wife is a night owl. I go to bed around 10 to 10.30. She goes to bed around 1 to 3 a.m., and I get up at 5 between 5 and 6 a.m., and she'll stay in bed until 9 a.m. when she works at 10, or noon if she doesn't. We never in the morning. I would love to, but to live with it. We have an arrangement where she'll wake me up comes to bed for sex. It messes with my sleep because I anticipate it and don't really sleep well. But for sex, I'll deal with it. This week has been a problem. Sunday, she had on her sexy panties. I ate too much and didn't want to. Monday and Thursday, she stayed up until 3 a.m. working on some craft. Wednesday, too tired, went to bed at 10 with me. Um, Thursday, she said she'd wake me up and didn't. So I was mad and couldn't sleep at all from 1 to 3.30 a.m. after she came to bed. Friday, she watched a movie until 1 a.m. Saturday, we went to a party. She again had on the lacy panties, but just went to bed when we got home. Sunday night, now she'll read a book until late. This has not been a good week. Help. All right. So sleep schedules are more of a preference than anything. When we first got married, I was the night owl. My wife would go to bed early and I would stay up late. At the time, I was going to college and I had no morning courses, so it was easy to sleep until late in the morning where she went off to work and then work late into the evening on projects and assignments. It wasn't good for our marriage, though, um, similar to what you're experiencing. And about five years ago, I took a job where I had to get up before 6 a.m. to commute to work. Since last year, when COVID hit, I no longer have to commute, but I'm still getting up at 6.30 a.m. to work out and then start work at 7.30. That's not a requirement of my job. I pick my shift hours. The point is, sleep schedules are modifiable. Now, you didn't mention whether or not you're getting up early for work or simply because that's a preference. So barring some commitment like work, what's stopping either of you from shifting your schedules? I mean, this is clearly not working for you and putting up with marital issues simply because of preferences is not productive in the least. Now that said, 
I would say that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that going to bed prior to midnight results in better rest. So as such, I would lean towards an earlier bedtime and an earlier rise, but I'm not a medical professional, so I can't say what would be better for you. Alternatively, what's to stop her from coming to bed when you go to bed, you know, have sex, and then she can get up again. Or you wake her up in the morning, have sex, and then she can go back to sleep if she doesn't feel that interrupted sleep is a problem. Because apparently she doesn't think your interrupted sleep is a problem. Um, But you already said that morning sex never happens. So maybe that needs to change. Why not trade off on the timing? Sometimes have sex when she comes to bed and sometimes when you get up. That way you're both equally affected. Um, So there are some ideas. Um, Ultimately, it sounds like you guys have to have a serious adult discussion about this not where one of you is blaming the other one where but where you both come to this and say hey this is a problem that we have how do we solve it together and that's all the questions i got in january uh, as always if you have a question of your own you can either email me at j at uncomfortingintimacy.com or submit it on our have a question page uh, if you want to participate in the discussions yourself consider joining our support forum uh, all the links are in the show notes and That's it for now. See ya.